Uh, if you are, uh, are visiting, I, I, I do especially thank you for coming today. As Jasper mentioned earlier, we, we know there's a lot of great places around, so we're always excited to have a visitor. Um, anyway, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 21. John chapter 21. We are in the final week. This is the final week of our journey through the Gospel of John. Everybody said, oh, right? Yeah. It's like week 43 or something like that. So there you go. It's been a, it's been a real journey. All right. It's like wandering around in the desert a little bit, but it's been great. Um, next week, what we're going to do is we're going to start Psalms. We'll, we'll not do all the Psalms. There's 150 of those. So I uh, wouldn't want to, you know, take you down that journey, but we will start Psalms. We'll do, we'll do some. Jasper's going to start that off for us next week with Psalm chapter one. So if you want to read ahead a little bit, uh, kind of prepare your heart and mind. You can read Psalm 1 this week. Be meditating, thinking, praying on that. Uh, I think it'll be a huge blessing for you. And uh, and then, yeah. So all I want to say really about John's Gospel is that it's been fantastic. It's been really good. I, I don't have, uh, of course, the time to do any kind of a recap, but a decent summary would be this. in That in John, we have seen through the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus... That, that those things prove that He is the Son of God, which is the whole point of what John set out to do, right? To, to show us that Christ is the Messiah. He's the Son of God, and that having believed in Him, we can find life in His name. And so what that means for us is, is these things. It means that when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, when He says, I am the light of the world, when He says, I am the door of the sheep, I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. When he says those things, he can be believed. He can be fully trusted. And he can be followed. Amen? In him only is where we find life. Now and forever. It's it's through him that we come uh, to faith. It's through him that we come to to know God uh, by our faith. And so... In Him there is life. Now, with this final passage, I just want to read it to you, kind of read this narrative together, and then, we'll, uh, and then I'll pray and we'll get rolling today. So John chapter 21, let's read this. It says, After this, Jesus revealed Himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and He revealed Himself in this way. All right, so he had, just, he had just revealed Himself to the disciples after the resurrection. We, we had that whole interaction with Thomas. And uh, then here we are. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in, in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, which is John, therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, 
with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to them, yes, Lord, or yes, said to him, sorry, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young and you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. As the saying spread abroad among the brothers that the disciple was not to die, yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. <laughs> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for this time we have in your word now. We ask, Lord, that you would bless it. Give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see Jesus today in such a way that we would find life in him. We love you. And we thank you for that you're with us now. Speak to us through your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, after writing really what felt like last week, kind of the, the perfect ending, right, to his gospel. You had the resurrection narrative. You have those beautiful words in, in John, 30, or John 20, verse 30 and 31, where, where John writes, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe and that, Je that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may find life in his name. I mean, that feels like kind of the perfect ending, right? Like it's this great bow, and then you turn the page, and here's chapter 21. And, and at least what it reminds us of, as John includes this epilogue, if you will, at the end of this, it, it demonstrates at least this for us, that we never really outgrow or come to the end of the gospel. We, we, we never get to the end of it. It never finishes. We, we never get beyond our need for the grace of Jesus. Our initial redemption is, is certainly received the moment that we put our faith in the work of Jesus on the cross. 
Like we receive redemption in that moment. But what we see here and what we see throughout the New Testament is that Jesus goes on redeeming, that He goes on reconciling us throughout our lives. And we call those two things, that initial redemption and that ongoing redemption, if you will, we call that justification and sanctification. Justification, you are declared justified by God through the work of Christ. Not your own works, but through the work of Christ in a moment. And you're saved, you're secure, you're going to dwell with Him eternally. But then there's this ongoing mark of sanctification where I'm being daily transformed into the likeness or the image of Christ. As Paul writes, from one degree of glory to the next, as we behold Him, we are transformed into His likeness. We become more like Him. And so it's this continued work of sanctification. Now this interaction with Peter and with the other disciples we, we see, really, this continued work of redemption. Last week, I looked pretty closely with you guys at that initial redeeming work, what we see there. What we see today is, is this continued interaction, continued redemption. And then we see how it reveals a mission to follow. That as Christ is working in our life, He's also giving us a new mission. He's giving us a new purpose in life. And so the the redemption of Peter demonstrates at least two things for us. If you're taking notes in in your worship guide, you can write this down. The grace of Christ, it reveals the grace of Christ for ongoing sanctification. I'll give you a second to write that. It reveals the grace of Christ for ongoing sanctification. Now I think before we examine this amazing exchange between Jesus and Peter, I I think you have to see the links to which Jesus goes to kind of set up this powerful moment of redemption. Jesus, he, he shows up on the shore, right? I mean, the disciples are out in the boat, they're fishing, they've been going all night, haven't caught a thing. And so Jesus shows up right as daylight is peeking over the horizon, and he calls out to them, children, do you have any fish? And they reply, no. And so he says, have you tried the right side? Cast your net over there and you will find some. And so this is kind of reminiscent, if you're familiar with the Bible at all, you're a little bit reminded of here his initial calling of the disciples, right? It's reminiscent of that initial calling of Peter, of Andrew and Zebedee's sons, where he told them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men, right after causing the same sort of miracle. Immediately, John recognizes this moment. He says, it's the Lord. And Peter grabs his outer garments because he he doesn't want to appear before Christ undignified. So he puts on his robe. He jumps into the water and swims to Christ. I think in that moment, you can see Peter's love is evident. He loves the Lord. He can't wait to get into the presence of the Lord. He's excited to see Him. I think the announcement that we saw last week of that peace be with you had done something on the inside of Peter, that there was this redemption of sorts that had certainly taken place. But can't you imagine, like, can you imagine being Peter? There's still got to be these lingering thoughts of denying Christ. That on the night of the crucifixion, on one of the biggest moments, one of those moments where you had said, I will not deny you. I will not betray you like these. I will not act like them and flee. And on that moment, you denied Christ three times. 
I imagine this is rolling around in his head and in his heart, and maybe he said, let's go fishing to kind of get it off his mind a little bit. Like, like, let me go do something different. I imagine in his heart and his mind that they're, they're being tormented by the enemy. That in the same way, a lot of times, our hearts and our minds are tormented by the enemy in the ways that we deny Christ. You say, well, I've never denied the Lord. Well, sure you have. Anytime we choose something to worship over the Lord, we're denying the Lord. We're, we're placing our affections and our de desires on something that will fail us, on something that's less than He is. And so these next moments are truly wonderful. It says when they got to the land that there was this charcoal fire in place. There was fish and bread laid out for them. Now, do you remember the last time you saw the words charcoal fire in the Bible? It was just a couple of chapters earlier when Peter's standing around a burning barrel and there's a charcoal fire and he's asked, do you know him? And he says, no, I don't know that man. Are you sure you don't know him? We thought we saw, no, I don't know that man. Are you, are you sure? Because you look like the guy. No, I do not know him. And then he heard a rooster crow. I don't know how significant it is, but I thought it was a neat correlation that John thought it was important enough to put those details in there. That the last time Peter saw a charcoal fire, he was standing before the Jewish high priest denying Christ. And now when he sees a charcoal fire again, he's in the presence of heaven's high priest and he's about to receive the reconciling, restorative work of the gospel on his life. Ongoing sanctification. And we don't want to miss these details, right? Jesus builds a fire. He, he brings out the fish. He brings out bread. Jesus is so careful in this moment to feed their bodies, right? I mean, He's so careful to make sure their sustenance. They've been out all night. Maybe they're cold. They're certainly hungry. How much more then do you think Jesus would be careful to feed our souls? How much more then do you think He values the sustenance of our souls, right? That we would be fed, that we would be nourished, that we would be complete spiritually. So Jesus says, come, have breakfast. And the disciples knew it was the Lord and they went and they ate with Him. Now this, this is reminiscent of John 10, 27-28. It says they didn't ask that He knew who, who He was because they knew it was the Lord, right? That reminds us of John 10, 27-28. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hands in the world there are a million voices pulling you in a million directions isn't it comforting to know though that that when God the good shepherd speaks his sheep know His voice and they'll follow Him. Well, how do we know God's voice? How do we know when He's speaking? Well, we have our Bibles, right? Our, our Bibles are God's Word. This is the voice of God in our lives so that when we are in the world and all of these voices are pulling us in a million directions, we can discern His voice over theirs. We can discern His voice in, in the airways of multiple Multiple callings, vying for our attention, things pulling at us. And we can follow Him. 
So I say, let us then be good stewards of God's Word. Let us trust our Bibles. Let us learn to know His voice. His voice is all that matters because in Him is life eternal. And in Him, like the net that is holding all of those fish without breaking, so too He holds you in His hands without breaking His grip. You are being held by God. And just as God is the good shepherd who holds His sheep, He is also the vine dresser who prunes so that we may bear more fruit. Now, pruning is that further demonstration of grace in ongoing sanctification. You are not saved and then told to go find your own way. It's not like giving birth to a child and then setting it over in the corner and saying, raise yourself, feed yourself, learn to walk on your own. I tell you what, we'll set you outside on the trampoline. Learn to jump and crawl and play. Right? It's, it would be as silly as that. When you are saved by God, you are also grown up by God. You are sanctified by God. He's not leaving you on your own. You're not alone trying to wander around in the dark, feeling around for a bottle of milk to be fed. Christ is feeding you. He's protecting you. He's guarding you. He's watching over you. He's helping you grow up. When you're saved, you're justified. But you're also being sanctified. And, and pruning is this painful part. There's nothing not painful about the cutting away of branches. Right? There, there's nothing not painful about that. Pruning may be painful, but it is necessary to bear more fruit. And so this pruning process is what we see taking place here with Peter. In verse 15, we read this. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. So he said to him, feed my lambs. Now the word these there is under, you know, there's a topic of debate, if you will. Some say it could refer to the fish. Maybe it's talking about his vocation. Some say that it refers to the other disciples. Some say that's just a general reference to kind of the world. I think what is most fitting, what is most significant, would be that he is referencing the disciples. Because in Matthew 26, when, when Matthew writes his account of what took place that night when Jesus, is, uh, when Jesus predicted Peter's denial, they're sitting around the other disciples and Jesus tells his disciples that they will all fall away and be scattered that night because of his arrest and crucifixion. And Peter pipes up and confidently responds, though they will all fall away, I will never fall away. So he kind of separates himself from the other disciples. Though they will do this, I will do that. And Jesus answers him in that moment. He says, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And so we see three denials, and now we see three questions of, do you love me? There's a purpose for this. In verse 16, we read this. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? 
Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. It says in that moment that Peter was grieved. I think in that moment, Peter was struck once again by his three denials. And, and he says, Lord, you know everything. Now, what I love about this is at first he was saying, Lord, you know I love you, right? You, you know that my heart is, is geared towards you. You know that I love you, right? I, my affection is on you. But in this moment, he responds, Lord, you know everything. And, and the beauty of this for us Christians who are stumbling forward, as James puts it, the beauty of this is, is that Jesus knows your denials before you deny Him. He knows when you're prone to wonder before you're prone to wonder. You know what I'm saying? He, he sees your wondering heart before your heart starts wondering. He, he looks at you, and yes, He knows deep down you love Him, but He also knows that human flesh of yours is getting in the way of that. But you know what it's not getting in the way of? His love for you. His pursuing love for you. His grace for you. Now he is going to prune you. But when Peter says, Lord, you know everything, he's including the times of his denial. He's struck by that. And he's also including the times of great affection. And he says, you know that I love you. Now, Jesus has just performed what I would call a gospel surgery on Peter. And, and let me tell you, gospel surgery is a gift of God's grace for our sanctification. It, it is never easy, as surgery is never easy, but it does ease our suffering. The grace of ongoing sanctification is a scalpel that produces redemptive pain not revengeful pain. You understand the difference in those two? The grace of ongoing sanctification, the pruning of your heart, is a scalpel that produces redemptive pain, but never revengeful pain. So, let me put it this way. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, you can be sure that God is not seeking to unload His revenge on you when you fail. There, there is no quiver of lightning bolts at His side ready to shoot down on your head. You find that far less fascinating than I do. <laughs> Rather, what we see in God is that He is seeking to unload massive amounts of sanctifying grace on, on you so that you grow more and more into the image of His own Son. That you become like a son, like a daughter for Him. The Gospel brings to an end, as we see in 2 Corinthians 7, this deadly worldly grief that we have. It puts an end to what the law does to us. It brings to life a godly grief, a grief where I can grieve knowing I'm being redeemed, I'm being transformed, I'm being sanctified, right? 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regrets, whereas worldly grief produces death. So when you're, you're grieving as someone who is under the law, you're under your sin, you have nowhere to go with that. It produces death. But as you grieve as someone who is under grace, 
You're now in Christ Jesus by faith. You are grieving as someone who knows that that is leading to your salvation. That's changing you. It's transforming you into the likeness and image of Christ Jesus. The law condemns, but the gospel convicts. The law creates self-centered tears. The the gospel creates God-centered tears. Paul David Tripp said it this way. He said, your hope is not in your ability to love God, but in His unrelenting and unshakable love for you. Hallelujah. Your hope's not in your own ability to love the Lord. Praise God it's not. But it's, our hope is in His ability to love us. Jesus is more jealous for our love than He is zealous for our works. If He has our hearts, then what we know is that He'll have everything else. Because He says as much. Wherever your, heart is, wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If we treasure Christ, He has our all. Everything that we are is in Him. He's transforming us. He's changing us. He's moving us. He's making us more and more like Him. So therefore, I stand on this, that He gives us the grace of ongoing sanctification. It is not something for us to be upset about or to mourn over. It's something to be grateful for. So when hard times come, this is why James says, consider it an opportunity for great joy. It's producing something in you. It's transforming you into the same image of His Son. The second thing we see here is that the grace of Christ, we've received the grace of Christ for missional living. In these moments, Jesus reveals Peter's mission, right? So So the declarations of, you know that I love you, are followed up with, well, tend my sheep, feed my lambs. Feed my sheep, right? Christ is, is, when he says sheep or lambs, he's referring to the church. Peter's one of those anointed first apostles who sets up the church. The the establishment that we enjoy a piece of today was set up by him and his fellow brothers. That, That God chose them in a special way to ignite this thing. And so he's given him a call, a powerful call. And what he's doing is he's saying, Peter, give your life to this task. But then he says it literally, right? As we see that Peter's mission would result in his death on a cross, that they'll clothe you and carry you to a place you do not want to go. Peter was crucified. Later rumors that he was crucified upside down because he didn't want to be crucified like Christ. And then Jesus tells him, Follow me. That same call he received on the shore three years earlier is now receiving again. Follow me. The whole process of restoring Peter leads to this new mission in his life. And the same is true for us, folks. When the grace of Christ hits our lives, it redeems us from the curse of sin. It gives us new life, which results in a new mission for our lives. Namely, that we now live to glorify God rather than to glorify ourselves. We live to build His kingdom, not our own kingdom. I love the way John the Baptist put it when he said, He must become greater and I must become less and less. 
Oh, how powerful might our lives be if we learned to pray that every day. And upon hearing that, he would be, upon hearing that he would be crucified, having just witnessed the crucifixion of Christ, Peter says, well, wait, what about John? What's going to happen to him? <laughs> Isn't it amazing how easily distracted from our mission we become? How easily something just kind of interrupts what God has given us. It's a shame, but this is the case, all right? One of the temptations for Christ followers is to measure ourselves against one another. When, which then reduces missional living to a sort of churched-up, long-distance urination contest where no one is the winner, and the world says, we want nothing to do with that. Lord, have mercy on us. And so Jesus says, what is that to you? You follow me. What is it to you what his calling may or may not be? What does that matter to you? You follow me. Jesus is telling Peter, and he's telling all of us, that his plan for someone else, whatever it may be, is none of our concern. We don't look at another brother or sister and say, why, Lord, did you call them to do that, and yet you've given me this? Or we don't look at another brother or sister and say, look at what I'm doing, and look how miserable they are. You understand what I'm saying? All we can be sure of is, is that we are only responsible for our own faithfulness. The faithfulness or the faithlessness of someone else does not change our ability to be faithful to God and our call to be faithful to God. But the good shepherd who knows us by name leads us by his calling, right? I mean, it, we see a clear decree here that this is who you're going to be. He, he knows the ins and the outs of every moment before they pass, right? I mean, before these things come to pass, God knows. Even in our final breath, we know that that moment was ordained by God. That there is nothing outside of His command, nothing outside of His control. Consequently, then, there are no little people in the body. There are no little places in His mission. You have been uniquely wired and uniquely priced for God's glory in God's story. Each follower of Christ is set forth by His grace for missional living, not according to our own works. The reason that is, as we see in Ephesians 2.10, is that we may do good works that He's given to us before the beginning of time so that our light may shine through us, or so that His light may shine through us for the redemption of unbelievers and the ongoing sanctification, the building up of believers. Amen? We exist to be a light to unbelievers. We exist to be a light for believers, all of which is meant for the glory of God, not ourselves. We're not building our kingdom. We're on His mission. 
He is most important. So therefore, your, your first priority then is to look to Jesus. If you're here today and you're an unbeliever in, in God, you're, you're not sure about all these things, your first priority right now is to look to Jesus and to keep looking until you can trust Him as your Savior unto salvation. What this means for you, my friend, is that if you are tired and hungry, you look to Jesus, who is the bread of life, and find life for your soul. If you are wandering around in darkness, you look to Jesus, who said, I am the light of the world, and you'll find a pathway for life. If you're looking for a community to care for you, you look to Jesus, who says, I am the door to the sheep, and you'll find a community of life-giving people. If you are looking for protection from the wiles of the world, you look to Jesus who is the good shepherd who holds you in his hand so that no one snatches you away from him. If you have suffered from the destruction of sin and are looking for a new life, you can look to Jesus who said, I am the resurrection and the life and you will find new life for your souls. If you are at the end of your rope with no direction to turn, you can look to Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life and you'll find a pathway to eternal life with God in heaven. And if you are fed up, with producing fruit that only withers away and does not last. It brings no lasting satisfaction in your life. You can look to Jesus, who is the vine. And you will produce fruit that lasts for eternity. Maybe it's not said anywhere else better than when God says it Himself in Isaiah 50, 45, 22. Look to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God, there is no other. Look to God. Look to Him and be saved. And once you have found salvation in Christ, your greatest concern then, so if you're a believer in here, I'm, I'm going to talk to you for just a second. If you're a believer, your greatest concern is to keep following Him. It's to keep looking to Him. It's to maintain a faithful fellowship with Him. It's to surrender over and again your life. It's to confess sin in such a way that you're brought back into fellowship with Him. It's to put to death the old man that still wants to rage about in you every now and then. And to take on that new life in Christ. What we know as believers is that because our sins have been forgiven and our soul has been secured by faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus, we now are to seek to live purely as Christ. Our example is pure. Hebrews 12, 1-2 says, let us, lay, let us also lay aside every weight... It talks about this cloud of witnesses that, that, that's kind of watching over us, right? That, that we have in heaven. It's all those who have gone before us, who loved the Lord, who laid aside every weight and went before it. So the writer of Hebrews says, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, 
the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Looking to Jesus, despising the shame of this world, putting to death that old man and taking on the likeness of Christ. Brothers and sisters, you and I have received grace from Christ through this gospel work, his life, his death, his resurrection, the redemption of our souls. We have received grace from Christ for ongoing sanctification and for missional living. We can live on purpose. So Christ has given us grace for ongoing sanctification that we may conquer sins and wrong desires and be molded into the same image of Jesus. He has also given us grace for missional living that we may shine as lights of His grace for the redemption of unbelievers and the ongoing sanctification of believers. No matter who you are, no matter where you're from or what your life looks like, this is your call. As we see at the end of this passage, all things necessary for salvation are written in the Word of God. There's no external sources for that. You don't need anything outside the Bible to be saved. What you need is God's Word to save your soul. But what we also see, which I think is so fascinating, is that the Gospel will continue to write stories for Jesus' glory and His grace wherever it is taught and wherever it is followed. As Francis Schaeffer said, we are not building God's kingdom. You and I are not building God's kingdom. God is building His kingdom and we are praying for the privilege of being involved. Amen? Sisters and brothers, let us Beg the Lord then to use us for such a cause. Would you stand to your feet this morning?